I don't know. It'd be quite fun if you were injured by a meteorite, I guess. (laughs) You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Cosmic Cast. You're here with me, Tom Harvey. To my left, as usual, I have Marissa Lowe. Hello. And to my right, unfortunately, we are joined once again by John Perny Fisher. How are you? Hello. And we have a real treat for all of you listeners today. We are joined by curator of the Earth Sciences Collection at the Manchester Museum, Dr. David Gelsthorpe. That's right. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So curating earth sciences collections what what does that entail no good question so we've we've got a massive collection at manchester museum so around about two hundred fifty thousand rocks fossils and minerals so i do everything from meteorites obviously that's why i'm here uh we've got a really big collection of fossils um everything from plesiosaurs fossil fish algae and everything between uh and then a big collection of rocks and minerals and Across the whole museum, we've got about four and a half million objects, a massive collection, and we're really fortunate to be a university museum. So that means basically we can get the best of the university and Mm -hmm. the university can get the best from us in terms of social engagement, working with the public, sharing our amazing collections and telling fantastic stories about research, what the university does, and really make quite a different offer to students here at Manchester University. They can use the collection in teaching. We do lots of teaching as curators and kind of get the best of both worlds of amazing collection, amazing research, and a kind of public front for for the university as well. So it's a great job doing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you get such a range of materials. How long has that been accruing? Good question, yeah. So Manchester Museum kind of started around the 1820s. So it was a, a kind of a gentleman's private collection really to be honest Mm -hmm. Um, mostly run by Manchester Natural History Society and Manchester Geological Society who set up their own museum in Peter Street in town so it's near uh, Manchester um, Central Station and Mm -hmm. kind of all all around the library that that kind of area Uh, so they set up their own museum and the two societies were in kind of conflict with each other in terms of whether they charged or not and who the museum was for the geology was on the ground floor and that was always free Uh, but there was various conflicts of of who was charging and who wasn't and there was um, silly little arguments about um, people coming in had to charge uh, to put their umbrellas in an umbrella stand and (laughs) silly little things but anyway um, through various reasons they went bankrupt in the 1850s 1860s and most of the similar societies across the north, particularly places like Leeds and Sheffield, uh, the collections went to the local authority, mm-hmm. uh, right, Sheffield Museum and Leeds Museum. But in Manchester, the local authority had just built Manchester Art Gallery, and basically they decided they had no money for culture at all, apart from what they'd already spent. So that was the main reason it went to, to Manchester University. So mm-hmm. it kind of they literally uh, wheeled quite a lot of the taxidermy down Oxford Road, which must have been <laughs> quite an incredible... Um, site but the geology collection particularly was reorganized from a kind of jumble of cabinet of curiosity type thing mm-hmm. to um, uh, a taxonomically ordered collection so that's in terms of actual fossils and and things like rocks and minerals as well so it could be used for teaching very specifically uh, and uh, specifically for research as well so making it into a scientific collection that made sense to understanding the world and doing research on that so um, 
beyond that, we've kind of gone from strength to strength, really, from the 1880s right up to the present day. And um, we've fairly recently broken all records in terms of number of visitors. We've got about 550,000 visitors, which is really exciting. Mm. And we're just starting a period of redevelopment. So we just started a £13.5 million project with money from the lottery and the government. And we're building a big temporary exhibition space. So fantastic space for having internationally touring exhibitions such as dinosaurs or possibly mm-hmm. even space and meteorites, which would be fantastic if we could do that. <laughs> uh, and also on our first floor, we're doing a joint exhibition with the British Museum uh, all around the South Asia, uh, everything from kind of Afghanistan, India, Sri Lanka and a myriad of different stories and we'll get the best of the collections from the British Museum, best of our collections and the real difference is that uh, we're able to work with fantastic people from South Asia uh, living around the northwest and Manchester in particular and telling the stories they really want to tell. Uh, so one of the stories I'm wanting to tell is um, about the Himalayas. We very recently got uh, a piece of Mount Everest from very near the top which oh. was really exciting to get. Mm-hmm. Tiny, obviously, but really, really cool to actually hold that in your hand. Mm. Um, and I guess we've got really different ways of got our collections. So with the meteorite collection, for example, uh, a lot of it is kind of personal research passions of, of different people. Um, but uh, we also uh, acquire things from inheriting things when people die, basically. Mm. Quite often people offer us material. Um, we occasionally buy material, so... Uh, we did a Siberia exhibition about five or six years ago, and we were able to use a tiny part of the exhibition budget to buy a Shikoti Allen meteorite from, from Siberia. And it's a great mm. story of kind of vast areas that have been uh, deforested by this amazing meteorite fall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's kind of keeping your eyes open for really cool projects, really cool specimens, uh, and developing the collection kind of as we go and um, through the networks of different people who are excited about meteorites and, and really great science. So it's really good. Mm. It must be really difficult then with so many objects in your collection to sort of choose what goes on public display and, and what stays in your more long-term storage. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the thing to say is that display is only a kind of tiny part of what yeah. we do as a museum. So obviously it's great to get some really fantastic, really engaging stories on display. Um but we also do lots of research, do lots of student mm-hmm. projects, do lots of teaching. And the collection's open to anybody to come and have a look at mm-hmm. and research, but it's just a matter of making an appointment, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the museum does really feel part of the university. I mean, for those who don't know, our department is located just across the road from it. Um, and yeah, the fact that it's free and it's so accessible. There's been so many outreach events there. Um, so how long have you been working there for? Yeah, I've been there about 14 years. So, oh, wow. so I've been involved with quite a few things across the... Okay across the years and yeah it's great to hear that you feel the university and the, the museum are absolutely part and parcel of each other because sometimes Oxford Road seems a really big barrier and <laughs> however much we try sometimes people we don't know where exist so things like this podcast are fantastic to kind of spread the word yeah. and just I always passionately feel that the collection's here to be used mm. if if we're not using the collection really why are we here why are we paying our wages we need to get the collection out there getting it used making a real difference and also, it's a great way to say that Manchester is a really different place to go to university. There's this fantastic resource, and you can use it in lots of different ways, from doing hardcore research to I don't know, having a nice cup of coffee and looking at the meteorites on a Tuesday afternoon yeah. <laughs> just to have a nice time. So, yeah. yeah, it's really great to have something different here at Manchester University. Hmm. So I believe your background is actually in paleontology then? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I've kind of fallen into looking after meteorites by 
by kind of uh, happy coincidence, really. So I um, did my degree in geology at uh, University of Durham, and then after that, I looked at various jobs. But to be honest, the jobs I was really excited about needed some either master's or PhD to look at those. Uh, and at the time, I really wanted to do a paleontology PhD. Uh, ended up at the University of Leicester looking at acrotarchs. So these are tiny microscopic algae. Uh, they fossilise very well and are actually right at the bottom of the food chain. So they're really good proxies for looking at what's happening higher up in the food chain and looking at how things like sea level impacts on, on biodiversity and extinctions, uh, how climate change um, has an impact on everything right from the bottom of the food chain all the way up. So uh, I looked at a particular extinction event in the Silurian about 430 million years ago, and fantastic opportunity. I went to uh, Gotland and a big island off Sweden to to really sample very high resolution samples across an extinction event. And I don't know. The main conclusion from my PhD was that things were a lot more complicated than we might have imagined, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is very common for PhDs. Um, and while I was doing my degree and PhD, uh, I did lots of volunteering at my local museum, which happened to be in Sheffield, where my parents are from. Uh, and so when I finished my PhD, to be honest, I wasn't really sure what to do. My main feeling was that I probably didn't want to stay in academia, but carried on volunteering and jobs came up doing what I was doing. And I actually found working in museums, it's a really great way of using real geology, real objects, fundamentally making a difference to people's lives, getting people excited about science, really excited about real things, real people, and getting passionate about the world around them. So since um, getting my first job in Sheffield, I've worked at uh, Scarborough and Whitby Museums, which is a great experience, uh, the Yorkshire Museum in York, and then I've been in Manchester about 14 years. With that many samples that you have to take care of on a regular basis, is there much actually taking care of them? Do they need much upkeep? Or Yeah, good question. So I think it's different for different things. So... Uh, obviously we have a massive collection the main focus of our kind of behind the scenes stuff is uh, trying to gather the information together so we can have a really good searchable database because if people can't find things either we can't find things or other researchers can't find things on the internet or whatever that it kind of may as well not exist uh, so the meteorite collection isn't massive we've got about 200 250 specimens so mm -hmm. they're very well documented so it's very easy to use them but the wider collection we've had a program of citizen science for about three years now where we've been photographing a lot of our specimens uh with the labels and then we've been putting them on our reading nature's library site on a zooniverse platform and fantastic thousands of volunteers across the world have been documenting our objects for us which is a really great great way in terms of I don't know, showing how amazing our hidden collections is, mm. really getting people excited about what we're doing. People can do something really meaningful to give it, give information back and their time back and share their enthusiasm. So um, in terms of our behind-the-scenes collections, it's really great to engage people in that particular way. Um, in terms of the actual meteorite collections, they're uh, housed within our mineral collection. And... Um, some meteorites, particularly iron-rich ones, are quite vulnerable to going rusty, basically. Mm -hmm. So we have them in quite sort of sealed cabinets, pretty good stable conditions. We have to watch the humidity and temperature. Uh, but generally, it's quite a modern building where, where the mineral collection is housed. So mm -hmm. it's not particularly a problem, but sometimes we, we bag things, for example, just to kind of keep things safe. And um, I guess 
having it stored in a way where you can find things really easily is really, really useful. Mm -hmm. So having good locations in your catalogue where you can find things if people ask you about a particular specimen and things like that. So that all sounds like quite a big job. Um, are you part of a wider team at the museum or is it mainly just you doing that job? Uh, yes and no. Um, so within geology, I've got an assistant curator who helps for half the week and we've got a fantastic team of volunteers. But we've also got brilliant support from a wider conservation team uh, and other curators and, and, and people that use the collection across the museum. Yeah. So within the meteorite collection, you said there are roughly 250 meteorite samples. Are there any that come with a, a particularly good backstory or i'm glad you asked there are some <laughs> excellent stories which I, I find so so interesting mm -hmm. so we've got um when you come to look at the collection it comes in lots of metal drawers and generally this there's kind of labels with each one and a lot of them are kind of uh, metallic so they don't look massively inspiring but as soon as you do a little bit of digging there's some brilliant brilliant stories so one of my favorite stories uh is uh, a meteorite that fell at a place called Apley Bridge near Manchester on uh, 8.45 on the 13th of October in 1914. So it was a fireball that was seen streaking across the sky. It came from the east, so the direction of the uh, kind of Scarborough, Whitby, that direction. It was mm -hmm. seen above Halifax and then right across towards Liverpool. There's a kind of big fireball going through the sky. And eventually they managed to track down where this hit the ground. And there was a big kind of uh, streak, a, a kind of channel going across several fields. And right at the end, they found a crater and a meteorite right at the end. It's now known as the Appley Bridge meteorite. And just because it was a similar time to the beginning of the First World War, a lot of people thought it was uh, the Germans coming across the Cheshire Plain and they'd actually <laughs> invaded and some people got a little bit hysterical, I think, but they <laughs> presumably calmed down quite quickly the day after. But at the museum, what we've got is a plaster cast of the original. Uh, I've got it here with me today, actually. It's uh, the similar size to a small football. It's quite sort of blackened on the surface which is the kind of charred surface as it came through the atmosphere and and burnt the crust on the on the surface and then there's some kind of fresher parts there's, there's parts um that are actually as part of the cast come off uh and unfortunately the whole meteorite or most of the whole meteorite is at the natural history museum in london it tends to be particularly at that time unless you had really good lab facilities for looking after uh, potentially vulnerable meteorites they went to the national museum but what we have on display in Manchester Museum is a small fragment of the Apley Bridge meteorite. It's a stony meteorite, so not the most exciting thing to look at, I guess, but um, just a brilliant story that surrounds it and obviously really exciting for people at the time. And the size of it too, I guess that's quite unusual for a UK meteorite to be recovered that's that, that size. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess a lot of meteorites that fall over the UK... Um, get burnt up in the atmosphere yeah. as shooting stars uh, or occasionally we get really really tiny ones um, but yeah it is quite sizable could easily have killed somebody well I guess. absolutely <laughs> I mean landing in a farm near Wigan that's quite lucky considering all the built-up areas that must have gone over <laughs> yeah absolutely um, I think historically across the world there's almost no examples of meteorites specifically killing people yeah. there's mm. a few in the US of kind of ones that have gone through people's cars yeah. and stuff like mm. that but I think it's dodgy, tall tales a lot of the time. Um, I don't know. It'd be quite fun if you were injured by a meteorite, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
that's one of the cooler ways to say that you got hurt. That's for sure. It would. Yeah. It's like I've never actually experienced an earthquake, but that would be really mm-hmm. cool. But mm-hmm. as long as it wasn't too big. But yeah. yeah. So does the, the does the sample and the cast, which which is obviously a, a big part of the history of kind of the story of the meteorite, does that come in in the museum's record with accounts from from people who saw it as well? Like how how much of the the record of the event is is just the sample versus other material you might have yeah um i guess we're trying to do more and more of that kind of thing mm-hmm. um most of what we have in terms of records in in the museum are kind of quite cold-hearted almost i'd say uh records from from researchers who've done research on particular mm-hmm. meteorites mm-hmm. and then the collections come to us uh, at manchester museum but particularly these days when uh we do uh, new collecting and and acquisitions we we tend to try and record as much context as possible yeah. where we we i don't know film things on our ipads and stuff like that with people mm-hmm. who witness things but yeah historically the apple bridge meteorite for example it's 150 years old so yeah you kind of have to do a bit of Not googling so, yeah. to find some of the context really mm-hmm. um so are there many samples that have been used for research then you mentioned that lots of collections can just be used by researchers um are there any in particular yeah, Museum. yeah, absolutely. So a really good example and one we talk about in our display on uh, our Nature's Library Gallery is the Canyon Diablo meteorite. And the thing I really love about it is um, the whole gallery is trying to uh, explain a bit about why we have big collections, what they're used for and why we have duplicates of lots of things so for example with the canyon diablo uh, it shattered into millions and millions of different pieces when it when it fell i think fifty thousand years ago uh, so a lot of museums have got it and we've we've got several hundred specimens um but the really exciting thing with the big collections is that you can do really accurate scientific research and have a really high level of of kind of plus and minus on on dating and things like that so the canyon diablo meteorite is really important because it's uh, was used to date the age of the Earth uh, for the first time to any level of accuracy. And when I was first kind of looking into this story, one of the things that really shocked me was that it was only done in 1956. Mm. And you think how <laughs> obviously yeah. science has advanced enormously in the last 150 years, but to not have a date for the age of the Earth with any level of accuracy until 1956 is quite shocking. Really. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So in 1956, they did a lot of radiometric dating. So they used um, radioactive uranium that was decaying to lead, uh, and they got a really good, accurate age for the data of the, of, the, of the age of the Earth, which is 4.54 billion years old. And that was plus or minus 1%, so really good level mm. of accuracy. Uh, and I think prior to that, Arthur Holmes, who's a fairly famous geologist, he dated the age of the Earth about 1.5 billion years, mm-hmm. uh, early 1900s. Um, and obviously the problem is... The, if you use rocks on the surface of the earth, they're constantly recycled by plate tectonics. So the oldest age of any rocks anywhere on the earth now is about three and a half billion years old. Uh, but that doesn't give you an accurate date of, of the age mm-hmm. of the earth. So you have to go to extraterrestrial sources to look at things that formed at the same time as the age of the earth. And this has been uh, subsequently confirmed by uh, samples collected by the Apollo missions, so lunar samples uh, and other meteorites as well. So really great example of we can only do really accurate dating with really big collections. Mm. Um, so the sample I've got here is just uh, a very small kind of uh, kind of ring of green resin. It looks really weird and almost jelly-like, but that's the way they kind of slice up the 
the meteorites and then they can do the chemical analysis on that. So our nature's library display has lots of examples in, in mm -hmm. this green resin mm -hmm. and kind mm -hmm. of um, a really good way of talking about big collections and why we have them. Was yeah. that sample analysed here in Manchester? Or? I don't think it was. I think yeah. it was based in the US, the okay. research, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the little pieces you've got in the resin there, they're only a few millimetres across. Are all the samples that you've got of the meteorite that sort of size? Um, most of them are quite quite big, actually, oh, okay. or are relatively large. So, so we've got quite a few that um, uh, sort of eight or nine centimetres in length. So, mm. yeah, do come to Manchester Museum and have a look. <laughs> <laughs> and they're really cool. Mm. Um, so... As we said before, your PhD was in paleontology. So where have you picked up most of this meteorite knowledge from and how has that been? Uh, good question. Uh, here and there and everywhere, I think, <laughs> is, the, is the answer. Um, actually, uh, saying that, that one of the most favourite parts of my job is learning about new stuff that... Mm. I mean, I, I don't think I did anything on meteorites when I did my degree. Yeah. I mean, I only had one lecture on dinosaurs, for example, but mm. dinosaurs are a massive part. So you, you just do a lot of background research, reading papers... Obviously, the, the um, meteorite researchers here at the Williamson are fantastic. I've learned loads from them. Uh, and it's been great to kind of work with them on outreach and things like that. So um, asking all the stupid questions that I'm too afraid to ask anybody else, all those kind of <laughs> things. Um, yeah, so you do the best you can and, and do lots of background research. Yeah. yeah. So another specimen I brought with us today uh, is a palisite meteorite. So really distinctive triangular slice of meteorite uh, it's really metallic but has some gorgeous olivine crystals and i'm sure a lot of people have seen them on the internet that you can kind of hold them up through the lights mm. they're like a stained glass window with the light streaming through the yellowy green olivine crystals um and this is a really beautiful quite unexpected specimen so um one of my favorite stories about how we acquired a new collection is um <laughs> I got a phone call from uh, a gentleman whose father had just died, and it turns out his father was Robin Howie. Um, uh, he was a quite famous mineral um, uh, collector and researcher. I wrote Dear Howie and Zussman, one of the mm -hmm. kind of famous undergraduate textbooks. So I knew the name, was really excited about potentially getting the collection. I had a good chat to the guy who happened to live in California. His father had just died and he was trying to sort out his father's estate and said, oh, would you be interested in his, his private collection? Um, so I said, oh, great, fantastic. But as a museum, we unfortunately can't just collect anything. Uh, we need to be really sure it's got good information, it's quality material because we've only limited space. Um, so I asked for a few more details uh, and all he could really do, particularly from California, I guess, was send me a photograph of a china cabinet in his front room. Mm. So at least it kind of gave an idea of the volume of the collection. And unfortunately, over several months, I guess they were very busy sorting other things out. It pretty much all went quiet. And I kind of thought, oh, it would have been great, but probably not going to happen now. Mm. And then eventually his other brother who lived fairly near Manchester was um, passing. He gave me a ring and said, I've got the collection in my boot. It's probably going to go to the skip, but can you take it now? <laughs> oh, so wow. obviously we're meant to get all these things signed off by the director and all the rest. So I'll oh, just bring it and we'll sort it out <laughs> when he's here. So yes. it came in 
an incredible collection of old shoe boxes, 1970s video boxes, really archaic 1970s newspaper, wow. a mix of all sorts of amazing things, some fantastic, uh, particularly minerals, some really beautiful fossils. And honestly, they, you were shaking the, the 1970s newspaper and diamonds were falling out and things like that. <laughs> but one of the absolute treasures was, was this palisite meteorite. Uh, it wasn't in the best condition. It had obviously been bought as, as a kind of great example of a palisite. It was blue-tacked into a kind of plastic uh, see-through case. Um, and it was in three or four bits. So uh, our great conservator, Jenny, across at Manchester Museum, she's been working for many months scraping away some of the rust, wow. putting it back together, and we can now use it for things like outreach and these kind of podcasts and stuff like that. So really great example with a bit of care and a bit of knowledge. You can kind of bring these amazing collections out to everybody. So it's yeah. a good, good news story, really. Um, are you much of a rock or fossil collector yourself? Yeah, good question. Um no, I think weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> um I did quite a lot as as a kid, um, kind of going to Whitby, collecting mm. ammonites on the beach and that kind of thing. And actually it was one of the pivotal moments in kind of growing up. I went um with my dad on a special trip to Blue John Mine near Castleton, which I guess ah. a lot of your listeners will know. Yeah. Uh, I really vividly remember going down, probably because it was a special treat for my dad. Um <laughs> and I've kind of always been interested after that, but yeah. I, it's one of those things that we've got such an incredible collection at Manchester Museum. The stuff that I found on the beach is <laughs> kind of never going to live up to that level of, yeah. of amazingness. Uh, so I tend not to collect. So I've not got a house full of things, which yeah. is good. That's <laughs> probably good, yeah. Ways. Probably one of the only geologists for whom that's true <laughs> as well. Yeah, I think for me, I sort of accumulated things from undergrad field trips. Yeah, and yeah, at the yeah. moment, they're just... Very nicely labelled, to be fair, sitting in my mum's garage. Exactly. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them in future. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. But they're not yeah. hurting anybody, it's fine. No, no, yeah. no. As long as she doesn't try and move the box. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to the meteorite collection, you mentioned you got a piece of Mount Everest. What are some of the other cool non-meteorite geology samples that you have at the museum? Oh, we've got all sorts, yeah. Um let me think. So one of my favourites is, um, it's actually really hidden on the gallery, but we've got uh, a piece of limestone with, with mudstone on top, which actually represents the Katy boundary. So the, the point where ah. the dinosaurs became extinct. Great meteorite story, actually. <laughs> um, so as I guess a lot of your listeners will know, um, there's a very distinctive spike uh, in a chemical element called iridium at this boundary, which happens all over the world um, and has been observed in lots of different, very distant places. So this is a chemical element that's very high in a lot of meteorites, mainly extraterrestrial origin, uh, and was kind of uh, dissipated around the globe in the kind of global storms that followed the the, the bolide impact in, in Mexico at the time of when the dinosaurs uh, primarily became extinct. So we've got a, a really great, quite hidden piece of limestone there where the conditions are okay for a while, and then you get quite a significant grey line uh, where suddenly things get very chaotic and mm. you see the evidence of the mega storms. Uh, so really nice piece of sedimentary evidence for something quite catastrophic. And yeah. obviously there aren't particularly any fossils in there either, but mm. it's really chemical evidence that you're looking at. Mm. So that's one of my favourites. Yeah. Um, do you know where that particular rock is from? Um, I think it's Italy that one's from, wow, but okay. we also have a, an example from the Netherlands. So mm. there's a few really good primarily marine um, environments where 
where the the horizon is particularly well exposed. So, mm. yeah. I suppose that's probably quite a rare example of uh, a point where something quite planetary science related intersects neatly with something that is very purely a big terrestrial geology event. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things we're looking at as a possible new exhibition is something about kind of what we're calling bioacoustics and sounds within the collection that are no longer there. So um, one thing I'm thinking about is whether we can do something really fantastic with this particular specimen and thinking about sounds and catastrophe and mm. extinction. and mm. Yeah, so I don't know. These ideas bubble at the back of your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine you must have so many ideas with such a big collection like that that it must be difficult to choose which one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, one of the big kind of themes that's taking shape a little bit in museums at the moment across the country and particularly in Manchester is the idea of decolonization so mm-hmm. our collections were absolutely the product of empire in lots of different ways partly because of their time uh, the mineral collection for example to an extent it kind of maps the resources of the empire a lot of mm-hmm. our minerals are, are UK based but got a lot of material from Australia and South Africa and various other colonial countries so really interested in trying to work out how how we tell the full truth, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're developing a display at the moment about minerals, um, particularly focusing on uh, diamonds and, and gold. So we've got some great uh, gold specimens from South Africa, particularly in the, as we've identified particular mines where they're from, and we've been able to identify photographs that are from exactly the same time oh. and show the black migrant workers down the mines um and also with gold particularly there's a lot of processing to get the gold ore out the out the rock so um there's quite shocking image we found where there's a kind of white mustachioed overseer um controlling the black Mm. migrant workers and trying to tell these stories for the first time and telling the kind of full truth of the reality of at what cost did we get our collection yeah um we very recently returned some uh, quite amazing uh, Aboriginal, religiously significant material back to their source communities, which has been a really positive thing. Um, I think people are a little bit scared about repatriation sometimes, and I think decolonization isn't equal to repatriation. I think there's lots of opportunities to make um, really great kind of links to source communities, tell stories that you've not been able to tell, and... And I think as well with natural science collections, and I guess even including meteorites, um, people are not really interested necessarily in getting their objects back. They don't really mm-hmm. care. But I think a lot of the time it's about the data. So it's our responsibility as a museum to try and uh, organise and collect the data in a really uh, comprehensive way, in a way that's useful to source communities. Mm. Um have a really good relationship and dialogue with source communities to understand what's useful and what they want and what stories they can bring that we're not even thought about I mean, for example with our botany collection um we could use the data to help um regenerate ecosystems for example um but there's no way they're going to want brown press squashed flat <laughs> specimens back <laughs> yeah but it could be a really positive empowering relationship for both sides i think so it's quite an exciting time with museums and it's fantastic that the it's, museum it's really interesting that. yeah so i guess it's, yeah. that, it's that link between the hard science and the more social history then isn't it absolutely yeah yeah and you can bring meaning to collections yeah. in lots and lots of different ways yeah. and two different people and i think it's interesting as well there's lots of 
for example, African communities in Manchester where these mm-hmm. collections are obviously very meaningful to them yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. if we can kind of build those relationships and yeah. just work out, I don't know, how we can get most value and most um, meaning from the collection, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess that's is that one of the biggest changes then that, that's happened for museums then over the past, say, 50 years, I guess, is transitioning away from sort of quite dry exhibits to something that's a bit more yeah. impactful in that way. I mean, when I first started at Manchester Museum 15 years ago, we had uh, really focused undergraduate collections, mm. um, or displays, sorry, certainly, where, I don't know, the, the Mammals Gallery, for example, was a classification of different animals, mm. and nature was something that happened to far-off places in the jungle in <laughs> South America and had was totally disconnected from the people who came into our museum. I mean, people, don't go wrong, loved the museum and had their favourite stuff, but we very much tried to put people back in, yeah. in the context of nature. And that includes um, hardcore science, particularly yeah. things like meteorites, yeah. and why should people care? Yeah. Uh, we've got to justify why we're here and be meaningful and, and get the collection used. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, absolutely. I think it's very slow to change sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, people, particularly people like the British Museum, are very scared of repatriation mm-hmm. and decolonization mm-hmm. and what that might mean and putting the drawbridge up. But I think handled in a sensitive, thoughtful way can only be an opportunity, really. That's mm-hmm. how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's excellent because I'd, I'd read about you know decolonizing collections and repatriation before, but I'd never really thought about it in the context of you know earth sciences samples because yeah. they're mm. you know you're just looking at a crystal or just a meteorite sample and you're thinking about maybe you know the geological history of what's sure. happened to it. It's very yeah. easy to overlook you know the the human yeah. aspect of, of of that collection, which mm. is obviously very important as well. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. So why wouldn't these things be part of somebody's identity? Of yeah. um, how amazing it is that you get fabulous gold from South Africa, for example, mm-hmm. or diamonds or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's just trying to think more broadly and just be more open-minded about what's important to different people. It's mm-hmm. just really, really interesting. So there's one question that we always try and ask all our guests that come on, uh, and that is uh, if you didn't pursue more of an, uh, an academic career or, or a career in, in curation, what else do you think you might have been interested in outside of science? That's a really good question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I don't know, it's kind of weird um, thinking back in terms of what motivated you and uh how you ended up where you are because i meet mm. people all the time who've only ever wanted to work in museums mm-hmm. that's not me i was never one of those kids who had ten thousand plastic dinosaurs in their bedroom <laughs> all lined up. um but i don't get me wrong i'm delighted i chose the career that i went into um but yeah it's interesting thinking back i was always passionate about gardening and things like that mm-hmm. so uh i've been volunteering at the new royal horticultural society garden in, in oh, salford yeah, yeah. which is, is cool. a really interesting project actually it's, i think it's the largest gardening development project anywhere in in europe so it's quite exciting to see how that's developing and what um role research for example on climate change can can impact on on that it's right next to the bridgewater canal and there's lakes and they're doing quite a lot on uh, climate change gardening and things like that so yeah i don't know it's Keeping a really broad, open mind and seeing where things take you. So who knows? Where <laughs> <I am. laughs> 
Right. Sounds pretty good. Okay, well, mm. thank you very much for joining us. That was uh, yeah, some, some fascinating My things pleasure. we got across yeah. the road. So definitely, if anybody of our listeners are uh, in the Manchester area, we'd all highly recommend um, you to cop down to the Manchester Museum and have a look. Right. Absolutely fantastic. Yep. Also, if you'd like to see some pictures of the samples that David has brought along today and that we've been talking about throughout the episode, um, we'll put a link to our research group Instagram in the description box. Absolutely, yeah. And did, did, sorry, did you say, do these things have a digital record associated with the museum as well? Yeah, our online catalogue is really rubbish. So okay. <laughs> okay, I don't want to promote people to look at our awful catalogue. Yeah, no worries. That's <laughs> so something we're working on at the mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we've got some meet, great meteorites on display, but... Uh, our collection is here to be used so if there's things you want to look at that are not on display just do get in touch and we're very happy to show people things brilliant thank you very much brilliant yes well we'll give you another round of applause thank you very much and until next week we'll um, well we'll see you all next week (laughs) 